Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Caitlin Cooper of the Basketball She Wrote blog and Patreon, one of my favorite analysts out there. And we have a great conversation talking about the draft and the Pacers, but also the takeaways from the NBA Finals. We start there and the prospects that she scouted, what looking for, takeaways from this Pacers season, a lot of really good stuff here. Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston to try a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 for new customers. That is awesome. Podcast runs about an hour, actually more than an hour. Really loved the insight here, and I hope you love it too. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's it, welcome to be here from my new platform and that you're still willing to have me to come on and talk. So I'm excited. As you know, I will have you on anytime and we have a lot a lot to discuss. And before we get into the draft and the Pacers, I want to talk a little bit about the playoffs, about the finals, because, and I think you articulated this better than anyone I've seen so far about kind of the way that great players kind of bend the norms, bend the rules of the game. And it's one of the great ways to appreciate what Jokic has done over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple different ways you can look at it. I kind of pointed out after the fact that like he broke down a lot of crumbling, a lot of pre-ideas that we have about who can be the best player on a winning championship team. I mean, some of those assumptions being that, you know, a center in the modern era you can't win with or you can't win with a center on the floor unless they're an elite rim protector or fully switchable out to the perimeter and and the way that he's been used. And I kind of wonder, like, to evoke a comparison, like we watched Steph Curry and how much he's changed the game and little by little you can see ways that Jokic has changed and evolved the center position and how other guys are being pulled out to the perimeter and operating and wheeling back and forth above the break or actually bringing the ball up the floor and being an initiator more and more and how much he's been a trendsetter in that regard, whether you're looking at, you know, Sabonis during his time with Indiana and certainly now with Sacramento, some of what maybe Houston will pivot to with Sengun, some of what Miami does with Bam. I think that you can trace a lot of that back to Jokic. You can. And the other through line with Curry and numerous other players in the past is that we could see the limitations of trying to replicate, you know, the yeah. the copycats being poor facsimiles because Jokic is such an incredible version of what he is that trying to do Jokic light just leads to a significantly worse thing. Now, Sacramento had the best offense in the league in the regular season with their shooting and everything else, but Jokic, you know, like the part of that was the, I, I referred to it as the metronome, but just how remarkably consistent Denver's offense was whenever he was on the floor. And that included possessions, included games, series against high level competition. And it does bend the rules in terms of what you think about. And I mean, I talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago with Dan Feldman, where I've, you know, I've been trying to kind of hone my ideas on whether elite offense or elite defense is kind of more relevant for championship aspiring teams. And if you can be as resilient, be as durable as the Nuggets offense has been with Jokic, I think that's what I'd rather have. Yeah, but I think that's the main point, right? Because, you know, I don't think that there is one unified theory of basketball or a mold. And I kind of pointed out that like, you're trying to find a way to best optimize that talent and find ways that you can break from the mold. And what you're saying there about Jokic being so complete, somebody had replied to me and being like, it's it's kind of odd that, you know, Bjorkren's centric offense around Sabonis with him as a fulcrum didn't, you know, better take off. And there's reasons for that that can be cross compared to Sacramento. But the biggest one being is as good and very underrated as Sabonis is, he's just not as complete as what Jokic is on the floor and the different ways that you can scheme around him and what, you know, Golden State was able to do at the back end of that series against Sacramento that, you know, you would not have been able to do against Jokic in the same way. One of the other big parts of the story with Denver, and Jokic deserves a lot of credit for this, so does Calvin Booth, is understanding that in order for Denver, that that when Jokic is so great offensively and he is basically devoid of weaknesses, that allows you to play more defensive players. And there was some great work done about point of attack and navigating screens, getting those kind of players, KCP, Aaron Gordon among them, Bruce Brown. But there's also the other element that Jokic needed to get better defensively too. And he did. Like he is better now. His, you know, his hands have always been good, but being in position and not conceding some of the same stuff. And so the idea that A, your offense can be that good and be that resilient and that your your defense can can handle what they're going to do, make life harder on opponents. And 
they they might not be impermeable, but they're but the threshold. I mean, this was such a huge part of the finals for beating the Nuggets four times out of seven. Considering how consistent their offense has been, that threshold is so high that it's a lot to ask. It's not impossible, but it's a lot to ask. Yeah, I mean, they were moldable too, and some of what they did to help Jokic take steps forward in the way that he did. I mean, being able to use some next off-ball stunts in some of those matchups so that he wasn't having to show his high, some of what they were doing with weaking in certain series, like, they were able to mold around what, you know, I wouldn't say it's his weakness because he has improved in ways that maybe they weren't able to in the past is like what you're saying with the roster moves. I will say this, and it takes nothing away from the Denver Nuggets and what they did. I'm not here to look at the path or add asterisks to NBA champions, but I do wonder if there had been a slightly different path on the way there. Like Bam's not going to necessarily challenge Jokic on the interior, like maybe some other matchups that we would have seen. Does that make sense? It, it does. And also, I mean, Jimmy Butler wasn't the same player in the finals that he was in the first round. And that could be an ankle issue. It could be something else. And credit to the Nuggets. They played the teams that were in front of them. But I mean, another one of those is that the old hallmark was a pull up, a dynamic pull up jump shooting guard. And the way things shook out for Denver, they didn't have to face that kind of guy. And, you know, the, the, the Heat don't have it. The Lakers don't have it. The Wolves don't really have it. And they weren't good enough anyway. And why am I blanking on who they played in the second round? Devin Booker. Devin. Oh yeah, Devin Booker can do it. But um, <laughs> yeah, that series kind of went. That series went a little bit haywire, especially with the injuries and everything. And, and Booker had, of course, some incandescent games in that series. But so they, it, it, I think Denver. Like what my takeaway from it? A, they're the champions. Banner fly for, flies forever. No asterisk. No nothing. But I also think they're going to be firmly in the mix in future years, and we'll see how next year goes, both in the regular season and the postseason. I'm not ready to say, like, they're the cha- they're the championship favorites, like, you know, even if it's plurality rather than majority for the foreseeable future, but they will firmly be in the mix, and I may pick them to win the championship next year, depending on how things go. Yeah, I mean, I think I rarely ever make predictions, but the one that I made on the one podcast that I did was whoever won the Nuggets Sun series. I felt pretty firmly was going to go to the finals and then emerge as the champion. So um, I, I was on somewhat on the Denver train, but that was in part because of how the matchups were going to lay in front of them. But um, I think I would probably lean with them going into next year, but I, I see the point too that it would depend. I, I mean, everything in the playoffs to me depends on matchups. But well, And that's the other kind of, fascinating part of how you how you piece this all together is we recontextualize so many things once you get once you get further information and so for Denver they looked really really good two years ago before Jamal Murray got hurt and there is this idea which I think is completely fair that they could have looked more like this team in 21 and 22 if Jamal Murray had been healthy I think they needed KCP or somebody like him Bruce Brown or somebody like him to maybe get all the way there but Considering they made the conference finals in 2020 and were looking very, very good in 21 before in that very limited sample when they had Gordon and they had Murray and they had Jokic. So in time, we could see that as like that was the that was the anomaly. That was the blip. But we're going to have to get more information. And I'm excited to see where all of this turns out. For sure. So let's get to the Pacers. Um, and we haven't talked much, you know, the, the, the downside of a team that had that really hot start and then things toned down after that, especially, you know, Halliburton got hurt. And then then after that, what do you take away? I know you've done some excellent writing, so we, we won't get into it in that kind of depth. People should read your work. But what do you take away kind of on key individuals or the team more broadly from a season like their 22-23 campaign? Yeah, I mean, it was so incremental, right? Because they did, they started off surprising people. And I remember at the time that I felt that a little bit that of that was inflated because they started with a very soft schedule. And on top of that, they were catching a lot of opponents who had guys out of the lineup. They were having to double a lot, going to a lot of switch to blitz. And then some of those opponents, when they were using those types of tactics, weren't hitting open threes against them. So I kind of felt like there would be a little bit of aggression there. Then they go out on a seven-game road trip and their half-court offense falls to like 30th during that span. Jalen Smith's still the starting power forward. They're seeing a lot of cross matches. That's bogging down the offense for them. They come back. They take Jalen Smith out of the starting lineup, put Aaron Neesmith in, and he kind of becomes a little bit of an unsung hero. And they go on that little bit of a run where they win eight of 10 games. And Tyrese is really figuring it out in clutch time and navigating switches in a way where we have really hadn't 
and seen him do that after the trade deadline last year and stuff's coming together for them and then he obviously goes down with the injury the Pacers go one and ten during that stretch it was revealing of exactly how reliant they are of him and I also think at the same time what coincided with that is that opponents started to get a little bit more aware of how they could attack them and what they were doing with Miles as a roamer and with you know them playing eight guards a night in the lineups and different hacks that they could find to get around that so that when Tyrese did come back they still kind of stayed on that same skid and then never fully regained their footing afterwards so I think they finished the season probably where most people expected that they were going to when the season started if that makes sense um, when Tyrese and Miles were both healthy I think that they played on the same win percentage rate as the Miami Heat did now that that doesn't mean that the Pacers would have been going to the NBA finals if they had been healthy the whole season. But, you know, they probably would have been clinging to, you know, maybe a play in position and maybe being a little bit frisky if, if they had had them um, for the full season and not pivoted to development mode. So I think overall, I left with the takeaway that they had guys take steps forward positively. Certainly Tyrese Halliburton did, and maybe that alters your trajectory a little bit, but they, they were what we thought they were going to be, I think, for the most part. That is a completely fair interpretation one stat on the kind of Tyrese on Tyrese off stats is that Denver sorry not Denver Indy we're just talking about them Indiana 118.3 clean the glass offensive rating with Halliburton on the floor and that falls to a 111.2 when he sat and overall the net rating negative 0.9 which is passable but still you know below below water then that drops to about a negative seven when he sat so you could Think about that in a lot of different ways. Some of that was, you know, starters versus starters in games he didn't play. Some of that was backup lineups. And for me, especially with a young team, but a young team that has some real potential building blocks, depending on how this front office chooses to see things. The other question is how you evaluate the players they have and what what are the bigger needs. And so we've talked a little bit about Halliburton and what he did. And Miles Turner, that was actually a big thread in the, the pod that we did in season. And he, after that point, uh, renegotiated and extended his contract, which is interesting. I don't know if we'll get into that, but I guess we'll kind of, kind of, you can choose which branch you want to go in first of like players who you think firmed up their place in the Pacers plans. Let's say in you, like, as you see it, not this is, this is more analysis than Intel, um, players who kind of firmed up their place and then the holes that need to be filled, whether it's through the draft free agency trade, whatever. Right. So I think it's really interesting because before the season started, Kevin Pritchard talked to the media ahead of media day and he had a quote somewhere along the lines and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, people ask us a lot, do we have a core? And he would say, you know, maybe I'm not sure yet. We might like what we're moving towards getting one. And then when the season's over, I'm not sure if that answer is fully there yet, at least for me as an, an analyst on who is part of that and who isn't. Certainly Tyrese Halliburton is going to be about as close to untradeable and Andrew on rookie contracts and how much they had established themselves this year. Um, and then Miles did, as you said, signed a renegotiation extension contract. So he, at least for the first time heading into an offseason, knows that, you know, most likely he will still be here, although they they could flip him if they wanted to, I suppose. But those are kind of the four guys you're looking at. And then as far as holes, I mean, I think everybody can probably see there's rumors swirling around, but, you know, they they need wing size wings that that hurt them in a lot of different ways this year, including, I think, to some degree on the glass. Um, they ranked 30th in opponent offensive rebounding rate. And because of the degree that they had to show crowds they had to double you know if Tyrese needs to take four steps forward on the defensive end if he would get hunted and get put on a switch they had to bring somebody over to the nail it was like emergency nail help whenever he was out there on the perimeter sometimes the same could be said of Buddy as well so when you're having to crowd people that much I don't have the stats on how often they were giving offensive rebounds up when they um, doubled or had to hedge or get the ball out of the ball handler's hands off to switch to blitz but I imagine that that didn't help their standing in that regard because you're giving up gaps you're having to be in scramble mode so if they can find somebody that they can throw onto those types of types of matchups so they're not having to to double and put themselves into scramble mode i think that there is a case where they can improve um the the rebounding somewhat organically and then also like they just have a lot of holes on defense in general because with Tyrese you don't really want to assign him to point of attack guys because of how valuable he is 
offensively for one you need to be able to maintain him being able to push the pace off of makes and and be the engine of what they do with how high their transition frequency was last year but also like right now unless he adds strength it's just too easy for him to get overpowered so you need somebody else that you're going to be able to put out there at the point of attack and all right now all our expectations are that benedict matherin's also going to be in the starting lineup and because of what his screen navigation can be and what it looks like sometimes when he creates domino effects after he switches they don't necessarily have a clear answer there either and sometimes that can contribute to the vulnerability that they have on the glass because because Tyrese is guarding off ball and against wings if you're having to double then you know he's already having to box out against a bigger body in addition to having to find that body when they're rotating out of stuff so that's probably my long soliloquy on how they're going to have to fix the defense but that's been the issue for the last two seasons and it's still an issue now it's a great point and the defensive rebounding is hard to square with also the idea that you can add defense first players, but you can't go too far. And DeMontis Bonus' current team, the Sacramento Kings, are a great example of this, where you're giving something up the more defensive players you play who are limited offensively. And typically, those are the type of players that are available. You know, the defense first players who are capable offensively are hard to come by. And for good teams, for bad teams alike. And so you can make it happen. Maybe you get somebody through the draft. Maybe you can identify an underappreciated player in free agency. And For the Pacers specifically, I mean, there is that challenge if you don't want Halliburton at the point of attack, if you might not necessarily want Benedict Matherin, then if you add that third person, well, then somebody's guarding a three or maybe even guarding a four just because the four is more limited as a threat to you. And so you have that. And then you ideally you want somebody, whether they're playing together or not, who can be that wing defender. And Neesmith did show some signs last year, but he has his own limitations. And so... What I really like about the Pacers and kind of how they're looking at things moving forward is that they do have these high-end talents. I mean, I've been a Miles Turner believer since he was a prospect, and he has largely, in fits and starts, lived up to that, and Hal Burton has been awesome. And so with those two foundational pieces, as they as they hopefully are, you can go with those guys, you can go in a lot of different directions, and there is this idea that I find so intriguing for young teams of there are some specific limitations you might want to avoid, but talent will help kind of whatever form that talent takes. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, the thing with, you know, Tyrese and Miles is is they they complemented each other in a way that I didn't necessarily expect. I remember I wrote, you know, a five numbers piece before the season started last year, looking at, you know, through Miles' career, even before Sabonis came, when he was still a starter at the five, he had never rolled on more than 50% of his screens. And that shifted. He 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 still wasn't somebody like, you know, DeAndre Ayton rolling on like 70 or more than 70%. But it did get up over that mark. And that really helps with Tyrese being able to get downhill. And like one of them was going to have to shift how they operate because Tyrese isn't really a punch it to the rim type of point guard. He more comes off and surveys and looks for options. And in a lot of cases, that's going to pair better with a role man to keep that uncertainty in addition to what his floater and like, you know, skip pass game is. Whereas, you know, if you're somebody like a John Moran, who really punches it maybe you know a popping big like miles would be a better match but miles adjusted his game and tyrese has shown that and then you know tyrese too you look at miles's percentage when he's out there with tyrese versus when he isn't like there's an effect on the pacers roster with every big out there because of what his manipulation is against drop coverage um to get roll men open and to be able to pass them open so you do have more flexibility. And like I had somebody comment on that, I think in a mailbag where they're like, you know, eventually when we're looking at draft prospects and other stuff, we just can't default to the idea that Tyrese is going to make all these guys better. But in a lot of ways he does. So you do have more room, I think offensively with what you're going to do because of the booing effect that he creates. It's more for me when the Pacers go into this off season is considering what players are going to help him. Um, so it, it it is about like I I understand your point in that you know getting defensive first guys there could be an impact there because you can see that with Buddy like he and Buddy are very important to each other when you look at the numbers when he and Tyrese are on the floor they very narrowly I believe out outscored opponents and with one of them played without the other one 
they got outscored pretty handedly, you know, when it's Buddy without Tyrese and when it's Tyrese without Buddy, because their partnership and what they do in transition, Tyrese, you know, is very much the engine of the transition offense. Buddy is an extension of it with the way that he sprints to the line. Buddy helps him against switches because he has so much gravity as, as a ghost screener. Buddy as a stack screener um, is very savvy with what he does when he leaks out and, and that helps those actions as well. So, you know, people don't necessarily think of Buddy as a defensive player, but with what the offensive numbers are when those two are out there on the court, like they don't as a team have to improve that much defensively to get to a net rating next year where they could potentially be outscoring, you know, teams by three points per 100 possessions in the regular season. And then becomes a question of if you're looking to mold this roster as into being a playoff team down the road, how sustainable would that be? You know, if some of their transition gets turned into half court possessions and, you know, more teams are targeting and 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 giving exaggerated game plans against Tyrese to the point where then you do need those defenders. So um, there are different ways to look at it. Lots more to discuss with Caitlin Cooper. But first, a message from FanDuel. Baseball season is in full swing and there's no better place to get in on the action than FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because right now, new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's up to $1,000 back in bonus bets. If your first bet doesn't win, just go to FanDuel.com slash Boston to join today. And it's been a while since I was super in on baseball. I did grow up a huge baseball fan. But FanDuel is a great way to kind of get back in if there's a specific matchup. Maybe it's a primetime game. Or if you're somebody like me who loves watching Shohei Otani, you can get in that way too. So don't miss your chance to snag a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 when you join FanDuel today. Just go to FanDuel.com slash Boston to sign up. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Must be 21 and over and present in Massachusetts. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Hope is here. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. The Pacers are also in a reasonable position in terms of, I mean, of course you wish that that they had gotten, you know, they had the seventh best lottery odds and they got the seventh pick. That is that is the most common thing that's, that's going to happen in a lot of those circumstances. So technically, they had better odds of, of sliding to eight. That's just the way the math works in the lottery. So they have seven. They could, of course, move up or down. We don't We don't know all that yet. They also have, let's call it roughly $28 million in cap space to use, and then that puts in the holds for, they not only have the seventh pick, but they also have 26 and 29 this year, and then they also, I think it's like 32, they have a pick somewhere relatively high in the second round as well, yet yeah, it's 32. That has led you to, of course, do great draft work. You do that. You do that whether it's in a Pacers. You're you're great at it in a Pacers lens, but of course, not only am I using it, but I think other people to try to put it in some other contexts as well. I'm going to open the floor to you of all the players that you've done work on, um, and for those who don't subscribe to your to your work, they definitely should. Who who intrigue? Like who do you, who are you most excited to talk about of the players that you've scouted? That's a great question. I think for the Pacers, I'm most intrigued by the dynamic between Jarris Walker and Taylor Hendricks. I think that those two guys are ultimately going to be the ones that they're picking between. Mm-hmm. And while they both track as fours who are certainly defense first, they are so diametrically opposite in a lot of the things that they do on the court and what that could mean for the Pacers depending upon which one they take. Um, so, you know, you look at Taylor Hendricks, and I think that he probably offers you more scheme versatility than Jarris Walker does in the sense that, you know, he is bigger, number one, but I think that he has a better chance of being able to switch out to the ball and switch through most positions. He's pretty close, in my estimation, to being a fairly positionalist defender. So in that regard, the Pacers kind of flipped back and forth last year between, in certain matchups, they wanted to assign Miles Turner to low usage wings and use him as a roamer, and Aaron Neesmith would get assigned to, you know, Kristaps Przingis or Vucevic or you know maybe Jared Allen so that they could take away lobs and so that they could prevent Miles from defending in space against pop threats and keep him low around the rim because they had to play so small 
if that's a vision that they believe in and it wasn't just, you know, a hack because, you know, we are playing four guards tonight. We don't have a choice but to play miles around the rim. If it's more so, we think that this is where the NBA is trending, which we did see that in the playoffs in various series. We saw how Robert Williams altered the series against Philadelphia with James Harden and Joel Embiid and empty side pick and rolls and his ability to roam. We saw Anthony Davis do that against Golden State. We saw a little bit, obviously didn't stop Jokic, but we saw, you know, that with Rui Hachimura guarding Jokic in game one and and the list can go on from there. More and more teams are doing this, including with the reigning defensive player of the year being Jaron Jackson Jr. So if that's something that the Pacers see moving forward, that that's what we want our defensive scheme to be. Um, I think that Taylor Hendricks fits that pretty well. And then also, you know, offensively, I lightly touched on it before, but Jalen Smith didn't shoot the ball as well as he did, you know, in the first seven games after they traded for him last year. That fell down. I think he was, you know, hovering right around 30% for a large portion of the season. And then teams were doing that cross-matching to them. And it really impacted the Pacers' offense and what they could do. Miles' numbers over the last two years when he gets defended by forwards compared to centers he's been a lot more effective when he can be defended by fives and now do a little bit more if he is defended by a five and sees a switch in the post for a quick duck in or whatever it is so if you want to be able to prevent that um, Taylor Hendricks has a higher conversion rate on higher volume and more versatility as a three-point shooter than what's the case with Jairus Walker. Um, I think that you can use him as a ghost screener and he can do that with some momentum, which is you know big within Rick Carlisle's offense. And he's also just really fluid in a speed roll situation to get off of two feet and be somewhat maybe of a lob threat with Tyrese as well. So fit-wise, I think that he makes a lot of sense. And then just as a light note here on the opposite side, that if it would happen that, you know, his shot doesn't translate, which most teams played him pretty close that I watched when I watched UCF's game. On the flip side, if the same is the case for Jairus Walker, there's other things that you can do with Jairus Walker. Whereas, you know, if he does start getting defended by fives, you can put him in the short roll. He can make those types of reads. He is a higher feel player than what is the case for Taylor Hendricks. So, you know, when you're playing flow game, which is a lot of what the Pacers do, they don't run a lot of complicated sets because they have a younger roster. I think that Jairus Walker can get you to the next action. And Jairus Walker also has great off-ball instincts as a defender, where if you want to play him as the low man and you want to revert to Miles Turner being in drop, which I think individually for Miles is his stronger defensive role, then Jairus is probably the guy because he's more proactive than what the case is with Taylor, where he can be a little bit more reactive. So as people can probably see from this long layout, two very different players that I think would give the Pacers two very different looks. Agreed. And I've I've done film on both of them. Nate and I haven't talked about Taylor Hendricks yet, but I actually watched film on him relatively early. He's uh, He was high on Sam Vecini's list, and I talked with Sam about the draft, and he's like, hey, you should watch this guy. And Hendricks, part of what I think makes him so compelling for a team like the Pacers is that I significantly preferred his film offensively beyond the arc than inside the arc, which is a little bit weird for a player who's, you know, six eight six eight and a quarter without shoes. So that's six nine, arguably six ten. He's he looks like a four. And so Hendricks, he shot overall thirty-nine percent on threes, but he shot forty-one percent on catch and shoot threes and had some truly terrible pull-up threes. I had in my notes that we'll put it like, like, good God, like this is a terrible pull-up three. UCF, he's the best player who'd ever played, prospect who'd ever played there. You get the you get to explore the studio space a little bit. I'm fine with, you know, teenagers taking teenage shots. I have no problems with that. But if you're building moving forward, it's like you're probably not going to ask Taylor Hendricks to do that unless he's already achieved so much that you're giving him that latitude versus UCF where it's, you know, they're at a different stage in the game. So that all is, is really positive. I, th- I, I thought that mechanically... Hendricks' jump shot looked pretty smooth. I actually thought it looked pretty smooth from mid-range as well. But he, um, but there were some really weird things inside the arc. One of those was like his handle and his decision-making. Yeah. He'd get flustered more often. And then one that you pointed out that I had noticed in my notes too is that Taylor Hendricks, and yes, he dunks you know, a significant portion of the time when he can because you know, he's 6'10". That's what you're going to do. He only shot 43% on layups in the half court. Like there's some real questions about his touch, particularly on contested shots. And so you square that up and you're like, well, that depends on how you want to use him. You know, like as you brought up the short roll, like some of those elements with Jairus are a lot better than with Hendricks. But if the idea is that they're going to be a low usage player to begin with, how much do you care? Yeah, I think that the one thing that doesn't get talked a lot about with Hendricks is that sometimes UCF was floating him between being in the dunker spot or being a floor spacer. Sure. And sometimes his off-ball intuition 
Um, it's not exactly where you want it to be right now, where, you know, maybe his defender turns their head and he doesn't, he doesn't go to cut or he doesn't know exactly where to space when the ball moves. And I think if you're playing with a guy like Tyrese, sometimes Tyrese can pass guys open and lead them into those spots. So I think some of that might be correctable, but also like, it is a thing. Like it is something that stands out and what you're pointing out there with some of the finishing, like, you know, I think a very high percentage of his shots were contested. And some of that's because of what you're saying. Like some of his shots just weren't great shots (laughs) like when you're taking a tough shot more of them are going to be contested but also like his gravity was pretty decent where if he does see a closeout and has to put the ball on the floor his handle is kind of high um if he has to go left he's a little bit allergic to that he doesn't want to finish with his left till right hand finishes and that contributes to some of what the low layup number is and also like the one thing that i think you can compare to jaris and maybe as strange as it sounds is this might be a positive point for taylor is that jaris's physique doesn't match his physicality he's built like a tank but he doesn't necessarily use that to his advantage whereas taylor i think that you can attribute some of what his finishing is to a strength issue he's not necessarily going to muscle through a lot right now so maybe you know if he does get in the weight room he does add strength it's possible that a little bit of that might correct on its own with time but you know that that's one major difference for him like i do think that the feel thing does stand out and not just in a way of like oh well that's all right because you know the Pacers traded away from Sabonis they don't necessarily want to have a playmaking big it stands out in other ways as well where you know there was a play against Temple that I pointed out in the one article that I read wrote where on one possession he's standing at the wing and his teammates are running a a slot pick and roll on the other side and the team hedges it so the big slips into the paint and Taylor recognizes, oh, that's going to be open. And if you advance the ball to me, I can make the triangle pass and throw it to that guy. So he gets the ball and that's covered up. And he's like, okay, like I didn't get it. The next possession down the floor, they run the exact same play and he predetermines and assumes, oh, that's going to be open again. So as soon as he gets the ball, he throws it there. Only Temple had changed their coverage and it really should have been the more advanced read to the skip pass, but he had already decided that that's what it was going to be. Or, you know, if he runs a play and there's a play breakdown and he has to get you to the next action. It can be very ambling or there's not a lot of mystery sometimes to how he, he puts himself into an action. If it's run for him, um, some of that stuff does stand out. I don't think it's necessarily going to be smooth. He's more of a low feel player and that can kind of, you know, be applied to Benedict Mathern as well and to a lesser degree, Miles Turner. So if, if you have all three of them in the lineup as well, you're going to really be relying on Tyrese to um, be orchestrating the offense, which is, is a solid bet to make, but I think that you would like to relieve a little bit, of that on his shoulders the point that you made about kind of correctable flaws i think is is such an important one when you're evaluating young players because there's this idea i I think about this a lot with players who are athletically limited and so the idea is basically everyone's going to have warts when they come out and the key question is it's not necessarily will they be fixed or will they not it's the degree to which they could they can be addressed and you know, reasonable outcomes. Like we're not, nothing is going to be a hundred percent. And so with Hendricks, the physical strength is one. The other is I was disappointed in his motor. I thought that he ran a little hot and cold, but when he changed ends hard, it looked great. And so you might, so there are times when you see that and go, Oh, that's really frustrating. And I've invoked his name in this space a lot over the last two years, but like Paolo Bancaro had some of, had some of that where like, he did, his defensive film was abysmal, but it wasn't abysmal due to defensive capability. It was that he didn't actually try. And generally, effort is, as weird as this is to say, effort is more correctable than not being able to do it. And so with Hendricks, the strength was one that I noticed. And then the second one was, you know, that motor changing ends consistently. And there are two different reasons why. One is the motivation, like you're you're getting paid money, that's how you're going to get spots of rotation. But the other is, for Hendricks, just like almost every college player, his role in the pros, whether it's with the Pacers or anyone else, is probably going to be smaller, at least at the start, than it was in college. And the way that he will get minutes, the way that he will have playing time, be in a closing five, is by ramping up the other elements to take away. I mean, he was over 20% usage, was a 21 21-2 per basketball reference. So I believe that, I'm not saying it's 100%, but it is a reasonable chance that some of what I didn't like about Hendrick's film can be better whether it's year one or year three. 
Yeah, and I think that one thing that stands, I actually clipped one possession for Hendricks in his breakdown because it reminded me of a moment from the 2017-18 season, which you know was kind of a magical year for the Pacers with Victor Oladipo getting his first All-Star and All-NBA nod, is that that team played hard no matter what the circumstance was. So they were playing the Phoenix Suns and Victor was in the opposite corner and, and the Pacers turned the ball over and he chased down a layup at the other end and, and got a block. I forget who the Suns player was, but that always really stood out in my mind because they were leading by 30 points at the time and the turnover happened and he still chased it down and got a stop. Taylor Hendricks had a moment almost exactly like that where UCF was leading by, you know, 17, 18 points with, you know, under five minutes to go and he still chased it down and got back. So I think some of that with the motor is it's somewhat similar when you watch the film of Gigi Jackson and that I wonder at times how much the heavy usage load for those guys impacts their activity away from the ball and how much they're able to do at the college level and once they get into the NBA and are conditioned to play in the NBA. And like you're saying, once they're no longer posting usage rates that are up around 25%, if some of that kind of naturally corrects on its own. I know you haven't watched film on him. um, And if you do, I will, of course, excitedly read the piece but Asar Thompson another guy like that for me where he floats a little bit defensively and when it becomes oh it's not your team anymore what what he could potentially do it's, it's another another potential line there and an, another player that you've done good work on that I'm interested in I'm my instinct is if the Pacers end up picking at seven he won't be there is Cam Whitmore and part of the context there is that I was intrigued and surprised that Kevin Pelton's stats only model actually had Whitmore as his has the number one prospect in this class. Of course, there's a lot more to consider and everything else. And I'm assuming part of that is because Whitmore is extremely young. He's one of the youngest guys in the draft class. What did you think of him when you watched on film? Yeah, I mean, Whitmore obviously has the elite skill of being able to get two feet in the paint and get to the rim. I think that part of my thing for the Pacers, and I agree with you, I suspect he will not be on the board when they're selecting, and I would be fairly iffy to trade assets to move up and go get him, is because I think at the NBA level, the best way to guard him is going to be to load up on his drives. I think that he and Gigi Jackson were the only two freshmen in the country with a usage rate over 25% and an assist rate below seven. Um, he just doesn't process kickouts very well right now. So if you, he wants to beat the help and, you know, beat his guy to the rim at every cost. So, you know, in a lot of cases he can do that, but you know, if he's not going to make the kick out, the problem with that is a lot of his, um, improvement areas right now are kind of identical to Benedict Matherin's, even though they're not really that similar of players, you know, Benedict kind of plays with his drives with a little bit more nuance. He is going to be more apt to draw contact. Whereas again, like Cam is more so beating guys there and doesn't um, get to the line as much as you would necessarily like. And I do think, you know, most Villanova guards play off of two feet, but his landings could sometimes need to be a little bit cleaner because he doesn't maintain his pivot point. And that can kind of impact what, because his processing is what it is on kickouts, like he kind of needs to be able to make multiple pivots with like a Rondo donut move to be able to survey the land. And if he doesn't get his footing exactly right, then he kind of takes that away from himself. But I don't think for me, it was ever a question of, you know, what his capabilities are as a player, because, you know, you do have to play him as a driver to such an extent that he can get to that step back and have space. Although he squanders a little bit of it was his release. He shot, I believe 40% on catch and shoot threes. Um, 27% on dribble jumpers. It's that I think that he, because of what the processing is, he needs to play at the four spot, or that's probably where he's going to be best optimized because if he can beat a bigger four off the dribble and then get to the rim, that's one, you know, one less big who's going to be there to meet him. And if he can play in space, which the Pacers could certainly construct lineups like that for him, you know, if he's out there with Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald and Benedict and Miles Turner, and he beats a four to the rim, he's going to have all types of space to, you know, just get cooking with gas like he's capable of doing and accelerating. But then what does that mean on the defensive end of the floor? And I think that you're going to have problems there if that's the type of lineup you're having to run to best optimize him offensively, because while he certainly has some good possessions in isolation situations with what he is as a strength-based defender and and the fact that Villanova sometimes would run him at the top of a 1-2-2 press and then drop him back and have him at the point of attack. His screen navigation is really iffy. He runs into contact a lot on off-ball screens. He kind of wants to gamble in passing lanes. He shoots the gap on off-ball screens. Um, and then there can be some similar, like with Benedict, some domino effects where, you know, I've made the switch onto the roller and now somebody's scramming me out and I can't go find my pay- pay- place on the perimeter um, where defensively I think that they would kind of have themselves in a little bit of conundrum. Like, I think I'm a 
little bit lower on his defense than what consensus is right now. I think that that's going to take some time for him to develop on that end of the floor, especially away from the ball. Um, I like his closing speed, but he can be a little bit um, not very discerning with where he sends the help. He's very good and can close space on a closeout, but he likes to help one pass away in a way that can be somewhat damaging to the teams overall and maintaining their shells. So um, I think that's going to take some time. Whitmore is an unusual bet because I thought that his feel overall and a lot of it actually noticed more on defense than on offense and some of the kind of like more broadly you could say four game type stuff, you know, like decisions under pressure on offense and defense and reading instincts were below standard, but he has good athleticism, which he actually applies. Like he is, he was a more aggressive physically than some of the other guys were to his benefit and to his detriment, as you brought up in terms of driving. And so there's this idea. I actually think about this more like when I play FIFA of like, is it better to have a high level athlete to teach how to play the sport? Or is it better to have somebody who has the feel that you can kind of hone these other elements? And in some ways it depends on a, your confidence of what kind of baselines, what kind of thresholds you can get them to from a feel from a skill development standpoint. And also what kind of player are you looking for? Because with Whitmore, he, I, I think there are real gains that he can make, you know, like, and this Villanova team was not near what Villanova has been the past. Jay Wright is no longer their coach, like what he was asked to do. And I, I can't, you know, maybe with different coaching, with different surrounding talent, some of that stuff could look better. But the other really bizarre thing with Whitmore is that his jump shot went pretty well this year, but like he, it's, it's a relatively new development. And when it's a new development and a small sample, because he had this thumb issue, you wonder how real it is. And, you know, if I got to spend a, spend time in a gym and watch him shoot 200 three pointers or a hundred three pointers, I could probably have a better read on it. But with him, I, I used the word bet before. I think you're making a lot of bets that could cash, but I'm not sure that they will. Yeah, and I think that you bring up the point too there when you say, you know, high athleticism, potentially low feel, and how do you balance that? That's something that in the draft analysis space, if I have a bias, I probably tend to lean toward the high feel players a little bit better simply because I don't know how much you can develop that over time or where there's a great, you know, example of a player who came into the league as a low field player and made significant leaps. I can point to Miles Turner on the Pacers roster and say that, you know, when he came in as a rookie in his first few seasons, like if he set a screen or made a pass, he wouldn't he wouldn't know where to go stand afterwards. And it would affect the spacing at times. And, you know, as time has gone on, I still don't think that that's, you know, something that you would list as a strength for him. But last year, he did make some strength strides in that area where he did make some quicker decisions or you know he would be more cognizant of okay I have a switch I'm gonna feel that guy's body I'm gonna you know go and I know what spot to stand at rather than going and you know leaving to the weak side where it makes it really easy for somebody to scram that out now I haven't taken advantage of it that type of stuff he has made progress I think some of it goes back to knowing the player and that's probably where the interview process would come more into play because like you know this is a bet that the Pacers took last year and like I said in a lot of regards, you can point and see similarities between Benedict Mathern and Cam Whitmore with with the chalk outlines and that, you know, Ben was one of only three players in the NBA last year who had a usage rate over 25 and an assist rate below eight. I think the only two guys, other two guys were Kelly Oubre and Jaron Jackson Jr. You know, Ben compensates for some of that because he's so good at getting to the free throw line so that if his shot doesn't fall, you know, he still has something else he can do about it. But something about Ben is, is that he's very receptive to instruction, um, really wants to improve engages the coaching staff a lot wants to go over film where you can kind of bet that hey you know this this might still you know it might be an area where he grows and comes around I don't know where Cam Whitmore is on that type of stuff to know if he would make um, strides in that area but I do think that you are making those types of bets because like you said like because of what the off the dribble shooting numbers are and because I do think that he gives up a little bit of space you know on a step back with with where his release is at and that it, it closes to him and that there can be a little bit of awkward with his one dribble threes and sometimes even like with what decisions he makes against a closeout where you know maybe he doesn't attack the top foot or he makes a decision to take like a step back to his left which he pretty much exclusively does when maybe you know instead he should drive that you don't exactly know how some of that's going to shake out and why I still think the best bet is going to be you know to be pulling defenders off from other places and load up on him at the rim and then is he going to be able to you know use his flexibility in the air to be able to still finish around that while he's waiting for other areas of his game to develop yeah it's 
It's so fascinating. And like, I'm happy I've gotten to watch a little bit more draft film this year than the last couple, but these players are all, they're all different kinds of, of, of gambles. And it's a stronger, I'll say it's a stronger top 10. The Pacers being at seven is a better position than being at seven in some other years, at least that I've watched enough of the guys. And we'll, we'll see where that goes. Uh, you, you've also scouted a couple players that I haven't watched and probably won't get the chance to. And the one that I'm most interested in of that group is CD Sissoko. What did you? I, I've I've seen a little bit just ancillary as I've been watching other guys. What stood out to you about his game? Yeah, I mean, I think he exists at the intersection of physicality and passing vision. I think that a team that takes him is going to be getting somebody who has a very high feel as a connector, and that at the other end of the floor, I think that there is a little bit of a disconnect with what his feel can be as a defender, and some of that's difficult to sort out because I don't know how much. I mean, certainly, I'm guessing you've probably watched Scoot Henderson, but the process for the ignite on defense is really hard to separate out from what individuals are doing. To defensively because you know there's so many struggles sometimes just for guys to get back in transition on defense sometimes the overall like what they were aiming to do scheme wise wasn't exactly clear to me where you know they wanted to switch in a lot of games and it's probably you know a pretty solid bet that if you're a guy who can slip a screen you're probably going to eat that night if you play against the G League Ignite because Mm -hmm. they just give up screen slips on switches so easily and, you know, when they would get a switch, it might be like Poo Jeter on the block and like nobody goes to double. So it's hard to know, like, did they just want to bait guys into posting up Poo Jeter so that he could rack up fouls or is somebody missing their assignment to go double? Um, and sometimes that would be a position that C.D. Sudoku would be in along the baseline where it's like, you know, you're kind of hovering toward the midline, but you've waited until that guy's turned or, you know, he's giving a lot of help at the nail in places where he doesn't need to be helping as the high tagger. And then he's giving up easy advantage advanced past threes but then you watch him and it's like oh you know yeah that guy just back cut him but he had the flexibility to reach back and grab that steal and now he's throwing a hit ahead pass with incredibly soft touch as a grab and go you know six eight whatever he is forward in transition or you know yeah his pull up jumper is kind of iffy but watch what he does with it with a shoulder bump and how he can get and you know punish and under or you can put him at the elbow and run split action around him and he's going to make a read there with like some really you know fancy perfectly played threaded bounce pass so you know I see him kind of as a guy who can be some connective tissue um, I think the one problem with him is because of what it, he's not really a pull-up scorer right now and he kind of can default to being a passer I wonder if defenses would be able to default to him being a passer and really stay home um, because I don't remember what exactly his catch and shoot number was it got stronger as the year went on but of his misses when I tracked them there was a law a wide range of outcome where a, a high percentage of them were air balls or getting blocked or you know an all-glass miss so um, I do think that there's kind of a plus and a minus uh, two sides of the coin to what his strengths and his weaknesses are that like yes he is this connective passer but there's reason to think that teams could maybe play him to be a passer and yes he's very physical and what does that mean within the context of what the G League Ignite's defensive system was versus what his physical tools are and if he goes to a team that you know has a more clarity in their system how would that translate and relay so I think that's kind of the overall you know sales pitch on CD makes sense to me and I will note that granted he's an exception for so many reasons but having spent a lot of years watching Draymond Green play in person teams are always a little bit uncomfortable playing guys for the past like it's just not the way things generally happen you need to kind of do some of the stuff that Ben Simmons has over the last couple years to get all the way there though it's different depending on the spot on the floor and circumstances and all that Uh, I the other I I was blanking on it um, but another player that I want to discuss with you is Grady Dick. And out of Kansas, you posted your analysis of him earlier in the day on Friday. I started watching film on him a couple hours before you post that film. So it's very preliminary for me. So what I was thinking going through, and this isn't meant to be in depth with everything, is I like to think of four questions with a kind of a shooter type guy. And I thought it'd be interesting. I'm not, this isn't meant to be more researchy. It's more just on your, your, your read on it so far. I'll, I'll just ask you the four questions. So the first question is, is the jump shot real slash dangerous? Yes, I think it, I think it's very real. I think that, you know, what his gravity was, what, this is one adage that I've used when a lot of people ask me to assess these types of things that, you know, when you look at a guy's shot, like I could have mentioned this with Jarris, you know, Jarris takes, you know, I think 2.8 threes per game. 
when you look at any given NBA game, there's roughly, you know, 90 however many possessions. You're only shooting on two of those. So in a lot of instances, the truer measure of spacing is what the defense is doing on the other, you know, 95 possessions. How close are they playing? How much bend are you putting in the defense? That's what real spacing is. A lot of times is what happens when you're not shooting more so than what you are. Now, when you are shooting, that's dictating what the defensive perception is. But the degree of bend that Grady Dick put in the defense for Kansas, um, pretty impressive when he's just coming off a pin down and, and the guy can just stand there. I mean, he, he has a presence just with his presence when he's standing there and also just his ability to, he's a guy that you can't say like when you watch Chris Duarte as a movement shooter or somebody who's going to create space against the closeout, he almost exclusively has to step back going to his left. Grady Dick can use an escape dribble going to his right. He can use an escape dribble going to his left. He can do things like I'm going to use a stutter rip with somebody closing out to me and I'm going to connect that to a step back and I'm going to drive the shot like those are a lot of common tactics that even with the Pacers having a lot of movement shooting that you can point to and say oh yeah they could do that I'm I'm largely in the same boat as you on the kind of the basics of it something that I found interesting I did a little bit of digging on this um so great dick overall 40 percent on a little bit under six threes per game that percentage is actually lower though the three-point line has moved out important mention there so i looked at guys like desmond bain and cam johnson and herder in their last college year worth noting all of those guys their last college year was later in life because they you know herder went two years and basically there aren't that many one and done shooters but the numbers are a little bit better on some of those guys either in terms of volume success or both But that ties in, I think, with the second part. You got into this in your answer. But my second question is, is the jumper versatile? And I think with Grady Dick, the answer is yes. Yeah, and the difficulty on what he's able to do, like being able to shoot right off of his tiptoes as soon as he catches it, like those types of little micro skills that you can see from him. um, I think he's an incredibly pure shooter in that regard or being able to relocate and immediately go catch a shot. Or there's times where, you know, he, like what I mentioned with CD, he might go along the baseline on a cut, continuous cut, make a little connective pass to the guy in the dunker. If that person misses a shot, you know, maybe he punches out a rebound, he sprints to the corner, backpedals, and he'll make that relocation three um a lot of these shots are are very hard shots so i don't know what the numbers on the shot difficulty were i don't have that in front of me on synergy to be able to look at it but just from the eye test of the games that i watched um i think that you have to factor that in when you just look at the basic uh conversion rate third question the less fun part for shooters it's always is their defense survivable slash passable Yeah, and I think that you're going to get a wide range of answers when you talk about that. Um, I think that the one game that was really informative of me for me for this when I was preparing to write that is I watched them play Texas. And in the first half, Drew Timmy uh, is going at him in the mid post and Grady has a way to project his presence bigger than it exists. I kind of use the metaphor of, you know, when you project an object on the wall and how big a shadow can be, you know, he really stretches out his arms. He shows his hands. He plays very big. He tries, he competes. But when you watch those possessions, you have to pay attention to what's going on in the background. Cause a lot of times Kansas is going to shadow his shadow. So they're going to have, you know, three guys with one foot in the paint so that there's a lot of protection behind him. And that's a little bit harder to do when you start operating out of the middle of the floor versus, you know, the mid post or the wing where you don't have as long of closeouts to have to make. So in the second half of that game, they were pretty much screening him into everything and then just attacking him in space in the middle of the floor. And he was he, he and his lateral quickness were struggling to hold up and it was harder for them to build a shell around that. Now, independently of that, I think within a team scheme, he can mostly hold up and maintain a shell. Um, he's active, he gets deflections, he does, he can, you know, anticipate rotations, you know, if he needs to be a, the low man and go help to stop a big on a slip, he might be able to prevent those shots under certain circumstances, but there can be a downside to some of what he does defensively too, where, you know, he's a candidate to get back cut. And then if he does, then that forces his teammates to have to switch some of what he does on screen navigations in the games where Kansas wasn't switching, which they did a lot of switching. Um, it forced his teammates to have to switch. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably a little bit lower on it than what I'm thinking that I'm seeing from consensus. I think that you'd really have to have the right types of defenders around him. And that's why when I ended that article, like you could see finally Texas was like, all right, we can't keep switching him onto the ball and and having him get cooked. So we're going to pre-switch him out of this approach 
approach, that memo gets lost in translation. And then he's also on that screen late connecting with the ball and they give up a three and, you know, then an argument ensues about the responsibilities there. And it's like, that's something that the Pacers already have to do with Tyrese Halliburton at times. So unless Tyrese builds his body strength and doesn't get overpowered as much, there's only so many people that you can pre-switch out of an action. And if you're having to do it and Grady Dick's the person that's like, okay, we just don't want to wear Tyrese out. We have to pre-switch him. We want Tyrese in his off-ball role because he does do some valuable things there. And then Grady gets beat. Where's the length coming from to protect him? Like you don't have that same crowd presence that what we're seeing on that mid-post possession that I described. So, And, and, and you're um, not going to be able to pull that off in the in the NBA, like you can in the Big Twelve, like it's just exactly. the the the, yeah. the talent that that's something that freaks me out a little bit about Grady Dick defensively is that the problems he had were against vastly superior opposition to what he will face in the NBA because wings in general are like one of the biggest talent differences because they're you're co you're bringing in you know like the maybe like the two best guys in each conference to have a shot and then if if you're, the idea is that Grady Dick's going to be a starter, well. It's it like he has good like length and overall position. You know, he's more like a you know six seven six eight guy with a positive wingspan. So those things are are good. However, you still have to figure out a place for him to be. And the you brought up Halliburton and how you can't pre switch two guys kind of out of action at the same times is that. You do that with Halliburton because he's always worth it. He's a wonderful yeah. offensive player who has the ball in his hands all the time. And there are teams who have the luxury of so many good defensive players and and, and that that need what Grady Dick does. And and he is certainly a good basketball player. But it's just like I, I use this phrase a lot, but like, is the juice worth the squeeze? And with him, the answer might be more context dependent than most guys. And an example I use, not that they're the same player. Yes, they are both white guys who shoot, but this is why I've always hated Grayson Allen on the Bucks is because they don't have that kind of latitude and Allen doesn't do enough offensively. He does things well, but he doesn't do enough offensively that he like solves all their problems. So like you do that for Halliburton, you do that for player X. And incidentally, a guy who's more on the ball, who is also bad at this is D'Angelo Russell. Like D'Angelo Russell is worse, I would say defensively than Grady Dick is, but he's also more involved offensively and so at least some teams will engage with the process of well how do we like we it's worth it to try to solve this problem we'll see where the lakers fall on that in a couple weeks i mean i do think the one thing with grady that gets lost is that he can get too off the dribble shots like 77 percent of his shots were jump shots as yeah a and he finished okay at the rim in the half court. I think he's round, round, round 55% on layups in the half court. So he has the ability to come up off a DHO and get to a one dribble pull up or come off a ball screen and get to a one dribble pull up or, you know, turn the ball downhill off a flare screen and, and push it ahead. Um, he does. He's not the most explosive guy, but he does have flexibility in the air and he has nice touch. So I think that there's other things that he can do. And the one thing that I really wanted to point out in the article, because I think at this point in the draft cycle, people do know what he can do as a shooter I think that there's secondary skills that under the right circumstances are going to show up more I think that he does have some some passing chops there that maybe didn't get pointed out as much as they could have at Kansas where you know if he is along the baseline he's a guy that you know he can do some things that you don't necessarily associate with somebody that you see as a shooting specialist where if he's on the left side of the floor he can put the ball on the floor with a stutter rip Um, he's fairly twitchy uh, then make a pass with his left hand and not just to the corner which is the easier shorter pass but he can anticipate that rotation and hit the guy at the 45 so that's not necessarily him like manipulating it in the way that Tyrese does with his eyes but he is making a read and because he is a taller shooter who you can potentially play at the four he has some pretty good vision too where he can kind of float skip passes overhead or if you do bring him in out of like Chicago with a pin down connected to a handoff and the big commits to him he can throw an overhead pass over the top of that big and hit hit the roller as well so I think that in the right context was certainly with the Pacers. I mean, you can point out and look at Rick Carlisle. A lot of the Rick Carlisle offense can be like a playground for movement shooters. When Buddy Heald came over, um, Louis Zatzman at Raptors Republic, when he was still riding at 538, actually wrote a piece about Buddy Heald going from Sacramento to Indiana and how much that unlocked his secondary skills in part because there was more shooters around him. The gaps were wider. He was able to make passes. But I would also 
add on to that, that it was somewhat the types of plays and schemes that Rick Carlisle was implementing that empowered him to be able to make passes where you're not having to read as many defenders. So like in my article, I pointed out that like, you know, Ricky screens was something that Kansas used a lot, which is, you know, an off ball screen and rescreen for the same cutter from the same screener. And when Kansas does that, they'll dot both corners. When Rick Carlisle runs it, they'll have like an exit screen in the strong side corner occupying the lowest defender and then it's empty side. So all Buddy has to do when he comes off the screener and draws the drop big is just throw an easy pass to Miles Turner and you know it's a dunk. So if you have Grady Dick in that type of a system, I do think that his passing is going to show up a little bit more than what he's been credited for. So he's not entirely only dependent on the shot, although the shot does unlock some of the things that I just mentioned. Right, and you nailed the fourth the fourth question. The last one that I ask is uh, in these circumstances is do they have any other abilities that can be that can be helpful to the team and in some cases detrimental but with great dick he has that and another play that stood out to me in the early film i've watched is dick is dribbling i don't want to say driving because he's going more kind of perpendicular to the basket rather than going at the basket but he's at about the free throw line and sees the big kind of cutting so it's not even really involved in the same action and just throws the pass to him and that's a good level of awareness he's a taller a taller shooter so you could see some of that and being a willing, being a reasonably adept passer, those opportunities actually present themselves kind of a shockingly large amount to shooters just because of yeah. where where they get the ball and the advantage that may be created as a part of that action. And so that mentality, though those skill sets, and he has a pretty good field defensively too. Like I watched a lot of Grady Dick steals because he had 50 on the season. That was surprisingly high for me. And Many of them were, you know, like I described it as right place, right time. And right place, right time for steals can be a positive or a negative. That might mean you left somebody way too open, or it can be you made a good read. You had to do a choice. And I think I think for, for Grady Dick, it was a combination of the two. Um, but that's fine. I mean, you can, you can work with that. And so he's notable in the idea that, like, I there is a theory of, of him that completely works, that I can buy the sales pitch entirely, but... He's going to have to really improve the weaknesses to get to the point where you you have him in with no hesitation, as opposed to having him in with some hesitation. And maybe the best kind of encapsulation of that for me is Miami, where Miami has Max Struess and Duncan Robinson, at least for now. And part of the reason why Struess ended up getting more consistent minutes from Spo is because it was the the comparative lack of weaknesses compared to Robinson rather than the the extreme nature of the strength. And that's that's kind of an interesting dynamic because you can kind of point to almost the opposite in Boston a little bit between Sam Hauser and Grant Williams, right? Sure. Because, you know, Sam Hauser, I think, you know, it was reported and, and you can see it like Joe Missoula. They kind of liked the idea that teams would slow down their offense to target Sam Hauser and that he was kind of a little bit better in isolation than maybe you know, what his reputation suggested. So then they're just having to defend isolations and they can load up on that. And they liked the fact that he was making shots and Grant Williams was slumping over the back end of the season. And, you know, Grant Williams isn't in the rotation at that point in time. So it kind of, and, you know, I think that's probably pretty highly questionable. I think a lot of people that, that covered the Celtics probably wanted Grant Williams to be back in the rotation earlier than what he was, despite how their season ended up ending. But it is, it, it goes back to what other people do you have in the lineup around them. For sure. Uh, I know we were kind of over on the time. Uh, is there anything else that you want to bring up? Anything else you want to discuss? No, I think we're good. I, I have one question for you. If you were in Pritchard's chair, seeing who you've seen right now, let's say, actually, I'll give it to you either way. Let's say Whitmore is and is not on the board. Knowing what you know at this moment and acknowledging that is an incomplete picture, who would you take at seven for the Pacers? Can I throw you a curveball? Of course. I I understand why there's some reporting out there that they're willing to move off the number seven pick if they can find an established wing. I'll put it that way. I mean, I know that they were very interested, according to reports, in OG Ananobi at the trade deadline. I probably value OG a little bit more than consensus. I think that in a lot of regards, he's the perfect fit for what they need at that four spot. And I think you're kind of hoping with Taylor Hendricks that he might become OG Ananobi and he doesn't have some of the skills that OG has. I mean, there's a case that OG might be the most positionalist defender in the NBA. He has a strong case for that. He was firmly in the defensive player of the year conversation for part of the year. And while I understand the concerns with his shot creation and that maybe that just isn't going to be in the cards for him and that, you know, his pull up can have a lot of range of outcomes because he doesn't have a very fluid transfer of energy up through his body with that. 
I do think that he was so essential in the Toronto scheme to their floor spacing that he was a floor spacer and mainly a floor spacer because they didn't have other people who could do that. I mean, with the way Fred was shooting the ball this year, that wasn't really an option for them. So there was times where you could see, like, even when they played the Pacers, you know, he might have a switch against TJ McConnell and he's still standing in the corner because they value that spacing so much where he didn't even really have the leeway to do a quick duck in. And, you know, his strides are such that he can beat a lot of guys to the rim. He doesn't have stone hands. He can finish with English. Like right now, his finishing is on a different level than what's the case for Hendricks or Walker. So if that was something on the table where they could finagle that type of a deal, I don't think it would be super popular with the fan base right now based on what some of the replies were that I got on Twitter. But that's something that I would give a lot of thought to. Absolutely worth a lot of thought. And there is a complication with with OG and some others about like, are they how willing are they to resign? But you also can get access to that information. Yeah. You can have those conversations and those will inform the decisions. But I, I'm so excited. I'm so happy I got to talk with you about this. Your insight is invaluable, both in audio form and, of course, in text form. And thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Thanks again to Caitlin Cooper for taking the time to come on. You can and should read her excellent work at the Basketball She Wrote blog. You can check out the link on Patreon. I believe it's patreon.com slash basketball she wrote. And I don't care whether you are a Pacers partisan or just somebody who likes great work. If you can, support Caitlin. She is phenomenal. And you can also follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper. C, then the number two, then an underscore, then C-O-O-P-E-R. Truly love having her on. And this is a particularly great time of year because the Pacers have a good draft pick. I'm sure Pacers partisans would rather have them, you know, have a better season. But for selfish reasons, I appreciate having her on for those reasons. And if you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every podcast, whatever podcast player you use, Apple, Spotify, wherever. If it's not somewhere, let me know and we'll pass that up the chain to people who know these things better than I do. But that helps because Real Jam Radio is never going to come out on a specific day of the week. It's my availability and guests, so it's going to be a little bit more flexible. So if you subscribe, it'll pop in. You can also help other people find the show. That is by social media, word of mouth, or leaving a rating review in the podcast wherever you're choosing. But the most important thing you can do for this podcast and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston as a new customer to get that no sweat first bet up to $1,000. Very cool. And it's baseball season, so there's a lot of great stuff going on there. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, Going Strong. Nate and I are doing that mix now that the season is over of prospect work. We still are going to do, I believe, three more at least partial scouts, some of which I talked about on this podcast. And then we also still have a number of team previews. The mock-off season is coming up shortly. We'll do that just to let you know it's going to be after the draft, but it'll be after the draft before the start of free agency. And Dunkdown Prime also includes great work by with John Hollinger and Dan Feldman and Seth Partnow. It's such a great group to be a part of. And then you can check out my written work at The Athletic. I did a collaborative piece with Law Murray that came out a few days ago on the Clippers situation. I have a couple other irons in the fire right now that I'm hoping to get done. This is this is a an awkward time because you can always be superseded by other news, but you try to get some try to get some things set up. So we'll see what I actually get finished because I have to get it all the way done before things actually really start happening. And such a wonderful time, even with no regular season playoff games, to be an NBA fan. So hopefully you can continue to join me here on Real GM Radio. You can also send feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, to NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I don't promise to read necessarily everything everywhere else, but I do to that email, and that's why I give it to you in this format, also at the end of a podcast. I'm trying to get better at replying. I'm not always the greatest at that, but I do read everything. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.